Welcome to ShipIt, a podcast about ops, infrastructure, and deployments. I'm your host, Gerhard Lazio, and this week I'm joined by Cameron Dutro, a software engineer at GitHub, ShipIt listener, and someone with an extraordinary attention to detail. The question that we will be trying to answer is what happened to Rails Active Deployment. While Kubi is a convention over configuration approach deploying Rails apps the easy way, it's not Rails Active Deployment, at least not yet. The path to that promised land is paved with good intentions, but it's complicated. GetKubi.io is where this conversation starts. Huge thanks to Fastly for shipping our episodes super fast all around the world. Check them out at Fastly.com. What's up, shippers? This episode is brought to you by our friends at Shortcut. Have you ever really been happy with your project management tool? You know, they're so hard to get right. They really are so hard to get right. Most are too simple for a growing engineering team to manage all they need to do. And others are just too complex for anyone. And I mean anyone to ever want to use them. They're just so painful. Shortcut, formerly known as Clubhouse, is different though because it's worse. I mean, <laughs> it's better. I mean, it's better. Shortcut is project management built specifically for software teams and they're fast, they're intuitive, flexible, powerful, and all the other positive adjectives you can apply to them. Let's look at some of the highlights. Team-based workflows, individual teams can use Shortcut's default workflows or you can customize them to match the way you work. Org-wide goals and roadmaps, the work in these workflows automatically get tied into larger company goals, and it takes one click to move from a roadmap to a team's work, to individual updates, and vice versa. Tight VCS integrations, whether you use GitHub, GitLab, or Bitbucket, Shortcut ties directly to them so you can update progress from the command line. Keyboard-friendly interface, the rest of Shortcut is just as keyboard-friendly with their power bar, allowing you to do virtually anything without touching your mouse. Throw that thing away. Iterations, planning, set weekly priorities, and then let Shortcut run the schedule for you with accompanying burn-down charts and other reporting. Give it a try today at shortcut.com slash ship it. Again, that's shortcut.com slash ship it. So it's been almost a decade since I deployed any Rails apps. And when I heard about Kubi, thank you, Cameron, pronouncing it sometimes <laughs> was difficult. I kept calling it Kubi. I don't know why, but it just sounded right. So Kubi, an easy way to deploy Rails apps on Docker and Kubernetes. I really wanted to speak to you. So welcome to Ship It, Cameron. Well, thank you so much, Gerhard. It's really an honor and a pleasure to be here. So you are actually a listener, and I think one of the listeners with the most amazing attention to detail, because when I changed the way I pronounced my surname, you picked up on it instantly. I couldn't believe that. <laughs> Yeah, thank you for saying that. It's funny that you say that, though. Actually, my wife would say that I am, I have an, a mind for detail for certain things, and for other things, a complete lack of attention to detail. Mm -hmm. And so she she'd be quick to point out that I don't, I forget right. things all the time. You know, especially when it comes to our kids. And she's a very detail oriented person. So compared mm -hmm. to her, I'm, I'm, I'm in the minor leagues here. But one thing that I have always really enjoyed is language. I love language, and I was. I was actually, I worked for Twitter for a number of years on the internationalization team. We worked on the Twitter Translation Center and, uh, you know, made sure that all of our apps and websites and things were translated into, I think we, at the time I left, we were up to like 70 different languages. Mm -hmm. And I also, you know, have dabbled in a couple languages in the past and just find them really interesting. And so when I heard that your name, you had changed the pronunciation of your name, I was like, oh, I just noticed it right away because mm -hmm. I had sort of in the past listened to it and thought, huh, I wonder what the origin of that name is. I wonder... You know, if it was potentially spelled with different characters at some point in its existence. And then when you pronounce it differently, that made me think totally differently about it. And so that's why I tweeted at you and I was like, oh my gosh, is that a is that another pronunciation, another valid, another different mm -hmm. pronunciation of that name? And yeah, I just had just had thought that that was very interesting that it changed. So it was very interesting. It was associated with a live event, I have to say. Mm. I'm going to mention this. It's like on, on Twitter as well. So you may have already seen this. If you follow that conversation as a listener, 
when my father passed away, I wanted to okay. adopt the pronunciation that, you know, he used to use mm. in his memory. And uh, it was around the same time. So that's what had happened. Something big has to happen in someone's life, I think, for them to change the way they pronounce their name. <laughs> and that's, right. that's what it was for me. So For sure. Well, I'm sorry to hear about your dad. Thank you. So why Kubi? Why Kubi? Okay. Well, I think it might be better to start at the beginning in this for this story. So mm -hmm. Kubi came out of or was born out of a desire to use Docker and Kubernetes to deploy Rails apps. But that's actually kind of only the second part of the story. The first part of the story happens or happened back when I listened to a podcast from the Ruby Rogues, which is a podcast that's been going on for a long time in the Rails and the Ruby communities. And uh, hosted by by Charles Maxwood, and uh, you know, I think for almost ten, maybe even more than ten years now, they just had like their five hundredth episode a couple of weeks ago. And I've been a longtime listener of that show. I'll have to dig up the exact episode number, but there there was an episode I think in the three hundreds with someone named Stefan Vintemaya, and he asked a really important question that stuck with me for a long time, which is, why does Rails not have active deployment? He called it active deployment. And for those that are not sort of in the know about this, Rails features a bunch of sort of micro frameworks within it. So it itself is a, a larger macro framework, but within it, there are frameworks like active record for interacting with the database, active job for running background jobs, active storage for storing files in stores like S3 or Azure's object store. Mm -hmm. And he, he asked that question because he had reached a point, and I think he sees a lot of, he mentioned actually in the show that for a lot of the customers he works with, I think he, he does a lot of uh, consulting. One of the things that they he had seen happen a number of times was that people would be working on their apps and the deployment experience was wonderful. They were writing apps, getting all the features that they wanted to working, and it was so easy. And then they reached the point where they wanted to deploy it somewhere. And Rails just doesn't have any answer for that at all. Mm -hmm. There's just nothing. There's no Rails guide. So if you've heard of the Rails guides, they're kind of these very, very nice, well-written resources for doing everything you want to do with Rails pretty much, but there's no guide for deployment. Mm -hmm. So what ends up happening to beginners a lot is they just kind of give up at that step or they use Heroku and Heroku's wonderful product. And I, I would not ever say anything bad about Heroku, especially their free tier. You can deploy an app to their free tier, pay nothing for it. It just runs on their infrastructure perfectly well. They stand up a database for you. It's really turnkey. You could also use Render. You could get really crazy and use AWS or Azure or something. These are for side projects, I would say. And then you know, for, for big companies, of course, they're going to use something big like AWS. Mm -hmm. But there's no sort of one true way of doing it, which is very un-Rails-like. In Rails, there's, there's an answer for everything, pretty much. And the community and, and the core team have really pushed in that direction for since 2006 when it first came out. But for some reason, no attention was ever given to deployment. And so I, you know, I used that idea as a springboard for Kubi. I let that kind of roll around in my head for a couple of years. And then I, I was using Kubernetes and Docker at work. And I know, knew nothing about it at the time, but some coworkers were trying to get us off of our very bespoke Capistrano setup. We had used Capistrano for a number of years before that. So what was work in this context? When you say work, what was work then? Yeah, I was working at Lumos Labs. So the, the makers of Lumosity, if you've ever played the, the brain games. And we have a, we had a sort of a, a large Rails monolith at the time and, and, and still do, I think. They still do. And they were working on, on migrating us to, to Kubernetes. And we had originally started with ECS. They actually had migrated us from Capistrano to ECS. And then we were only on ECS for maybe a couple of months before a new hire of ours decided he had used Kubernetes before, and he decided he wanted to migrate us to, to Kubernetes. Mm -hmm. And I was on the platform team at the time, and he was on the production engineering team. And we sat two desks away from each other, and I got to see and watch all the things that he was doing and his his team was doing. And Kubernetes just absolutely blew me away. I was so impressed with, with it. And yes, there's a lot of configuration, of course. Mm -hmm. It's not as if it's easy to learn, but I, I had a front row seat to all of that, all that going on at the company. Mm -hmm. And so I thought to myself, you know, those those sort of two those two ideas, the idea of, of Rails needing active deployment and the idea of using Kubernetes to run Rails apps were both in my brain when I had started thinking about what if I did this? What if I started to, I, I somehow wrapped Kubernetes and Docker up into some easy to use gem that then any Rails dev could use to deploy their application. So you mentioned Docker. 
Why Docker? Well, one of the big reasons for Docker is because Kubernetes runs Docker images or, or it runs images built built with any OCI. Is OCI the right word? Any builder system? Yeah, open container images. Yeah, that was like one of the standards which came out of it. So, right. Okay, so you needed a container image for the Rails app and you're using, you're using Docker. I say when you say wrapping it, you mean you're wrapping the commands, the Docker commands, in order to produce a container image. Correct. So it would know what to run and how to run it within Docker. But the the goal was to produce that artifact, which is the image that a Kubernetes cluster could run. That's right, exactly. Got it. Yes, so there's, there's really two steps. There's the build the Docker image step, and that in and of itself is pretty complicated, I think, mm-hmm. depending on all the dependencies you have, et cetera. But yeah. once you've got that artifact, then deploying that to Kubernetes would also be wrapped up. So there, there was the two different phases are build and then deploy. So that was the, the genesis of the project. Mm-hmm. And the, the first step actually was creating this thing called kubedsl, which is a separate gem. And kubedsl is just a way to define Kubernetes resources in Ruby code. So think about Pulumi, it's similar to, to Pulumi. And I, had, I didn't even know that Pulumi existed at the time. Mm-hmm. But to me, it was like, I need, I need some kind of way to declaratively build or, or to even you know, build up in code these resources so that then I can like serialize them to YAML or JSON and then and then send them to Kubernetes. So that's where it started. And then all the other all the other parts of the project sort of spiraled spiraled out from from that, from that starting point. So when was this? When did you start Kube DSL? I think that was in 2018. Okay. So that was the beginning of Kubi before Kubi was even mm-hmm. a thing, right? Like the idea was there, but you didn't have a name, you didn't have like all the packaging. So the first step was Kube DSL. And what happened afterwards? Let's see. I'm trying to think. I think the next step was writing the the Docker portion mm-hmm. of Kubi. So Kubi has a number of gems in its in its ecosystem because it supports a plugin system. Mm-hmm. One of the gems, the gem that sort of is like the kernel, if you will, to all of the, all of those things is called Kube or Kube Core. Mm-hmm. And Kube Core it contains the Docker building portion entirely. So that was the first step or the second step, I guess. Mm. And the idea was that I wanted, I took, I think my, my dad's construction company website, which I built for him like in 2008 as a PHP programmer project and then redid in like 2014 as a Rails app. Mm-hmm. And I used that as a test bed to see if I could like bundle, because I wanted something that was semi-real, you know, mm-hmm. his website doesn't get very much traffic, especially since he's basically retired now. So you know, it really doesn't get any traffic now. But, you know, I wanted to see what I could do in, in a semi-real app. And so, you know, a lot of that initial work was just lots of trial and error. Like, you know, what needs to happen? And I mean, I knew the basic steps. Like, we need to have Ruby in this image. And we need to have all of the gem dependencies usually pulled in via Bundler. And we needed a database driver. And we needed, you know, to run a web server as the last you know, CMD directive in the Docker file. Mm. And all of that stuff. And, and so I worked it out as a series of phases so there's a, a setup phase, which is the, you know, from Ruby 3.1.0 or whatever. Mm-hmm. That's the from directive at the beginning. And then there's the bundler phase and the yarn phase for JavaScript dependencies, a copy phase for copying all the, the code into the image, mm-hmm. and then a web server phase. So all of those things sort of run, they're, they're almost like middleware. Like if you've ever used Rails middleware, yeah. you can hook them up in a certain order. And then you can say, I want to insert a piece of custom middleware before this one. And then it applies them all to the Docker file in order. So that was the first step. And that that actually, I was surprised sort of how smoothly that went, just because I'd never done this kind of thing before uh, in Ruby. So, you know, just coordinating all of that building up of that Docker file was a really cool sort of like proving or like a, a proof of concept that made me think like, okay, this this might actually work. How did Nokogiri go? I'm curious. <laughs> <laughs> oh man i still remember that <laughs> like you know <laughs> yes. like 15 years is not long enough to forget the pain that oh, Kogiri used to be back in the day is it still as painful i think mike he did some good job with changing yes. some things recently but i don't remember like what your experience was like as you were building kubi for nokogiri or with nokogiri it's such a specific question to Rails and, and the Rails world. <laughs> so those that don't know, Nukogiri is a Ruby gem that has a bunch of native extensions, which means they have uh, its native extensions written, in, I think, in C. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it compiles against libxslt and libxml2 and all these other libraries you have to have on your system. You need to have those headers present. And it can be a real pain to install because sometimes those headers don't exist in the paths that that the gem is expecting. And uh, it's, it's a gem, by the way, that parses XML, mm-hmm. like the most popular gem for doing that, even though Ruby has a built-in 
re-XML parser in the standard library. People seem to use Nokogiri a lot more. It also has, if you're using JRuby, it also has a bunch of Java code that it compiles too. So yes, it, it can be a real thorn in people's sides. It also takes a long time to build. There's a lot of code and a lot of linking that it's doing behind the scenes. Now, if you have all of that stuff on your system and and all of that is set up correctly, then running you know bundle installer gem install Nokogiri seems to go perfectly smoothly. But if any one of those things is even slightly wrong, it blows up and spits out all of these very esoteric compiler error messages. And it's you know very difficult to debug, especially for somebody who doesn't work in, in C. It's funny because I didn't have any of those problems. I think the major reason for that is because the Ruby base image. So if you look at the sort of official Ruby Docker base images on Docker Hub, they have all of those dependencies already built in because they know that people are going to want to install something like that. And so, and they have a, a, you know, GCC and all the other stuff built in there too. So bundle install is all you need in that image. And and I think if that doesn't speak to sort of the power of containerization, I don't know what does, you know, that's just very, very nice. Oh yes. Yes. That was like one of the things I remember build packs were really helping with Mm -hmm. in Heroku. And that was like the first step towards, wow, there is a better way. You mean I don't have to like solve this every single time manually. Right. And I was doing chef at the time and puppet. And there was one more thing I keep forgetting. It was so painful. Yes. And then Heroku changed things. It was, oh, this is interesting. And then build packs, they were great. Uh, mm-hmm. Cloud Foundry, I remember how well that used to work. Now, having Mike part of the team <laughs> that was uh, doing Cloud Foundry really, really helped mm. in that ecosystem. That was like a huge, huge advantage. So no one had to worry about Nokogiri in the context of build packs anymore. But then Kubernetes came on the scene and it was very. I was very curious to see how they solved it. And apparently the Ruby image, which it would be impossible or like not impossible, but very, very hard to do it right via a operating system package, for example. Mm-hmm. You could do it, but it's it's not trivial. Then the container just solved it. So that was so nice to see. So that was like a pain which remained in the past. And it was amazing yes. <laughs> for it to be like that. Okay, so you used Kubi when you began, like, and I really like this story. You used it for Master Builder Construction your father's website, yes. your dad's website. And uh, that's a demo, which I really liked. You deployed it to DigitalOcean, which I found really interesting. Did you use since Kubi with other applications? Yes. Yes. There's, there's The short answer is yes. There's a longer answer, which is kind of. <laughs> so okay. The Kubi integration tests, like stand up a new Rails application. They build the Docker image. They push it to a local registry running on like the in, in, in the same VM that everything else is running in, mm-hmm. and then they deploy it to a kind cluster that's running also in the same VM. This is all on GitHub Actions. So, has it been used in other Rails apps? Technically, yes. Mm-hmm. I'm actually working right now on migrating one of our. So, I work at GitHub right now. I work on the design infrastructure team, and we have a website called Primer.style, which is for the Primer design system. And uh, there's there's two sort of storybooks. If you're familiar with storybook, it's like this. It's a it's a system, a website that you can can sort of mount in an application or de- or deploy somewhere. It's written in JavaScript, and it's meant for React components. So you can mm-hmm. sort of create what these are, what are called stories, and those stories then appear on the page, and you click around and see what's possible via the different inputs and things to that React component. The same thing exists for view components, which is one of the big things that our team works on. View components being components for Rails, mm-hmm. uh, which is something that just came out a couple of years ago from GitHub. And so we have a Rails version of that storybook. It actually uses the same storybook front end, but then it has a Rails app back end that renders these components and returns the HTML that then the storybook JavaScript React app displays on the page. So we are migrating from Heroku to Azure, which is one of those sort of mandated things the company's doing because you know we're owned by Microsoft now, so we should use Microsoft products. So I'm working right now on migrating that to Azure and I'm using Kubi to do that. Interesting. How does Azure compare to Heroku? in terms of running stuff on it. <laughs> oh man, it's night and day. <laughs> okay, in what way? Tell me about it. Okay, so well, you've used AWS before though, I assume. Yes. I think you've said that on the show before, I think yeah. everything but Azure. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> I had only very, very tangentially used Azure. When I was working on the Kubi Azure Gem, which is a, a provider that lets you deploy applications to, to Azure using Kubi, I had to go in and, and make an Azure account and sort of try to learn it. And my goodness, is Azure complicated. I mean, it is like, I actually think it's more complicated than AWS and AWS is already pretty complicated. Wow. Okay. That's saying a lot. Yeah. That's saying a lot. Yeah. Azure's like another level above that. And I, I don't know why I feel that way. I mean, part of it is because I've used AWS a lot more than Azure. So I think if I had used Azure more, I would not be saying that, um, but yeah. it certainly felt 
a lot more complicated. Heroku is, is so easy. Heroku works via Git. You just say Git push Heroku master mm-hmm. in your app or in your, your, your Git repository, and it automatically detects that you have a Rails app or a Django app or whatever, Node.js, and then stands up a server for you, stands up a database for you, modifies your database.yaml so that it connects directly to that database. You don't have to do anything, right? It just, mm-hmm. just works. Azure is a lot more DIY, and there's a lot of sort of different levers and bells and whistles and, and, uh, and terminology that they use that... You, as a Heroku person, you would probably have to do a lot of sort of learning to sort of get into that. Fortunately, a lot of that stuff was done for me because we have a team at GitHub that they have, it's called the Azure Paved Path team. So they have systems set up where you can request capacity essentially in our our Azure, what would you even call it? Our Azure account, I guess. Account, yeah, yeah. So you create a subscription and then in that subscription, you have resource groups. And inside the resource group, I created a, a Kubernetes cluster. It might be worth mentioning that a lot of these hosting providers these days, like DigitalOcean, Linode, Azure, AWS, they all have these hosted Kubernetes offerings. Mm-hmm. At least for Linode and DigitalOcean, the control plane, which is the part of Kubernetes that does all the actual controlling of your resources, all of that stuff is free. I don't know if that's the same with Azure, uh, but you can stand up a cluster. And then the part that I'm struggling with now is trying to get credentials to access that cluster. Mm-hmm. So that's the next sort of frontier for this particular application, because I want to be able to point Kubi at it. And for that, I need a client ID in secret, and I can't just create those myself. I have to go through a process for that at the company. So mm-hmm. once that's done, then I'll be able to, to just point Kubi using the Kubi Azure provider gem and then be able to deploy it from there. And I, I'm going to wire it all up with GitHub Actions too. So I don't know if that answers your question. I think it does even more so. I mean, Azure sounds complicated. There's like a couple of like extra steps or different steps. Maybe they do things mm-hmm. differently. I haven't used it myself. I mean, I looked around, I create like a couple of VMs. One thing which was the case in the past, and when I say the past, like maybe five years ago. So this was like quite some time ago, mm-hmm. definitely before GitHub and Microsoft were as close together as they are today. And back then, I remember the Microsoft networking was such a pain to work with. There were like all sorts of issues when it came to networking. Mm -hmm. Things may have improved. I don't know. But that was like my first impression. I said, okay, let me just focus on GCP and AWS for now, because they're like the three big cloud providers. Mm -hmm. And um, Azure was like in third place, but it was like felt like it was up and coming Mm. five years ago. So and I haven't checked it since. But it would be interesting definitely to see how it works and I like my CLIs, but more so, I like the integration. So if there's something that already solves that problem for me, like Kubi sounds interesting in terms of if it automatically knows how to provision a cluster. I mean, is that the case? Does it know how to provision Kubi, a Kubernetes cluster in Azure? That would be really cool if that's how it worked. Unfortunately, no. So Kubi asks you to stand up a cluster first, and then you you point your Kubi configuration at that cluster, right. which is similar to how Active Record works, where it expects you to already have the database created and then... Right. But I think there's a lot of a lot of a potential there. Yeah. I mean, one thing I was just thinking, although this would be, man, this would be so much more than I don't know if I, if I personally could bite off, but, but it'd be very cool if we could wrap Terraform somehow. So, mm-hmm. you know, standing up your database for you could be a Terraform thing instead of like a, instead of having you do that yourself. Or, or in, in the case of Kubi right now, Kubi uses KubeDB to stand up Postgres or MySQL database in your mm-hmm. cluster. It's a stateful set and it uses persistent storage and, and KubeDB is, is pretty good at that. But mm-hmm. I understand some people really don't want their database to be managed by Kubernetes. And so it'd be very cool if using maybe Crossplane or Terraform or something, mm-hmm. we could say, oh, we, we know you're using Azure. We know that Azure supports manage databases like MySQL Postgres, wouldn't it be cool if we could just, you know, you know, make an API call for you and send up a database mm. in those systems. Hey friends, this episode is brought to you by NetFoundry, the creator of OpenZD. OpenZD is the only open source way to embed zero trust networking into your app. This gives you unprecedented control and security. Give your app superpowers using an OpenZD SDK and a few lines of code, or use their tunnelers to spin up zero trust networking in minutes across any cloud or device. Never face the horrors of VPNs, DNS, inbound ports, or complex firewall rules. No networking engineering skills are needed. OpenZD is trusted by developers at Microsoft, Oracle, Ramco, and more. 
And if you don't want to host your own OpenZD, use the NetFoundry SaaS, which includes free forever tiers for up to 10 endpoints. So you can test things out for yourself at the netfoundry.io slash changelog to learn more and get started. Again, netfoundry.io slash changelog. Crossplane announced recently something called Terrajet. I say Crossplane Unbound. And Terrajet actually wraps Terraform. What that means is that any Terraform provider can be easily converted to a Terrajet provider, which runs within Crossplane. So anything that you can provision with Terraform, you can provision with Crossplane via Terrajet. Oh, that's very cool. So then if you have a crossplane anywhere, you can ha- use that to manage a resource via Terraform. Mm-hmm. And that'll be one way of solving the provisioning aspect. But it's like all like all like the infrastructure thing. And there is like still a decoupling happening between the infrastructure paving and the application setup, right? Because you have one to dial tone, whatever that is. In this case, it seems to be Kubernetes. And then mm-hmm. once you have the dial tone, Kubi can take over and it knows what to do next. But it still needs that step zero, which is like the prerequisites. And in this case, just a Kubernetes control plane API. Totally. No, that's really cool. I'll have to check that out. You said it's called Crossplane Jet? TerraJet. TerraJet, right, right. Okay. Yep. Yeah, I'll share it with you after the recording. Not a problem. We even have like an episode, part of the, part of the Christmas one, episode 33, mm-hmm. where we build... I say we, I mean, it's a royal we, the person <laughs> that you see on the other end, uh, together with uh, Muvafak and uh, Dan Mangum, we built a provider for Linode, mm-hmm. which provisions Kubernetes clusters using, so we can use Crossplane to provision Kubernetes, uh, Kubernetes clusters so that we can deploy the app and everything else mm-hmm. of, that we run on Linode. So that was an interesting project. That's really cool. I remember hearing that on the show, although it was somewhat, I was just listening to the audio. Mm-hmm. I, I should go back and watch the video too. I'm sure that's really cool. So there is one, but it's not edited. <laughs> oh, okay. So we have to edit it before before it gets published. But there is a resource that you can use and, you know. I do want to say, you know, one thing, I actually looked into using Crossplane in Kubi because I was thinking like, wouldn't it be nice if we didn't have to worry about the database or, you know, stand up a database using kubedb part, part of the problem too is that kubedb now has a licensing model that makes it much less turnkey to stand up a database and so i've, I've mm-hmm. migrated away from that I'm, I'm going to i think kubi will stand up a cockroach db for you instead because it's postgres compatible mm-hmm. uh, mostly postgres compatible and also like much more cloud native than mysql or postgres were ever designed to be mm-hmm. so i think that's where i'm going to go with that but the the question of crossplane came up when I listened to ship it, actually, the, sh- the episode about Crossplane, and I thought, wouldn't it be really cool if I could just, you know, deploy a CRD that would then stand up, you know, for example, in AWS, it would stand yep. up on MySQL or Postgres, because that's what most people are doing. And all the people that I know that have used Kubi had written managed database false in their config mm-hmm. and gone and stand up, you know, stood up their own because they don't want their database running in Kubernetes where, you know, they can't, they don't really know what it's doing or if it's going to, it's going to go down, if they're going to lose all their data, which is a totally valid concern. Yeah. So most people aren't even using that option. The problem that I ran into though, is that cross plane, it, it would be better for my use case if, because for example, in AWS, I would have had to create a security group and put it in mm-hmm. a VPC and I would have had to specify all of that stuff in the cross-plane configuration and the system as it's a, the kubi provider system or provider set of gems right now are really not that capable they, they don't know that your app needs to be running in a vpc it's really the whole thing has been architected from the standpoint that you have a cluster and that's all you have access to yeah and so everything that you do needs to be in that one cluster it, we need to have a lot more smarts in each of these providers to do things like create vpcs or stand up databases yeah and then the networking to connect all those things together is also very i think provider specific and so we'd have to figure out all of that stuff beforehand something like crossplane terra or the, this 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 terrajet you mentioned might be a little different but i think it might be also similar where you have to also mess with all that all those sort of tangential side things that would need to go into standing up a database but yeah, I mean, I'd love to, if there's some, some solution that makes that more turnkey, that would be amazing. So you mentioned that others that use Kubi set managed database to false. Mm-hmm. Who else uses Kubi? I'm very curious. Well, it's been people that have reached out via GitHub issues mostly. Mike Rogers, who um, unfortunately has, has passed away, he did a really nice video about deploying. He actually used GitHub Actions 
to deploy a test app that he had written. He did a screencast for this. He deployed a test app into DigitalOcean, I think, with Kubi, and then tweeted about it. And he also invited me to the London Ruby Users Group and uh, for for a meetup. And I talked about Kubi uh, at that point, you know, to to a, a number of people there. So there was some interest from him, and that was really nice to see. And he had tried to use it. And then Vladimir Dementyev from Evil Martians also wrote up a really comprehensive article about how he had used Kubi to deploy. Uh, I think also again a test app that used the AnyCable gem that that team has been working mm-hmm. on. AnyCable mm-hmm. being this this project that um, lets you set up it's sort of before action cable, which is Rails official offering. AnyCable helps you uh, use WebSockets and connect to an application and you know uses Redis, I think, to, to send real-time push uh, updates and things to different people who are connected to it, so over WebSockets. So he had also, he created a Kubi AnyCable plugin that makes deploying all of that stuff turnkey, you just add it to your, your Kubi config, you know, add plugin and it works. So those are the people that I'm aware of. I think there are probably others that have not mentioned anything to me, have not said anything. So yeah, that, that's all that I'm aware of currently. Well, if anyone is listening to this and has used Kubi or is thinking of using Kubi and knows someone that has, uh, let us know. I would love to hear and to see, give some examples repositories would be great to add in the show notes or in the comments. You can contribute comments directly when this comes out. I love seeing real world examples and mm-hmm. I love hearing about feedback, things that worked well, things that you know, people would like like to see it being improved because I'm thinking the same thing. Why isn't Kubi the Rails active deployment? I mean, can you imagine Kubi being one day Rails active deployment? Well, I can Im- imagine it, although it's it's a little scary for me because I'm one guy and I learned mm. how to use Kubernetes by watching somebody else, you know, do it over his shoulder. And, and that's really how I learned Docker also. So I, I know how these tools work to a certain degree. Mm. And I think I would love to see Kubi improved from people or, you know, by people who know what they're doing in this space more than I do. Mm. I'm specifically, I think, worried about security because a lot of my, I, that's a big gap in my in my Docker and, and Kubernetes knowledge is, is that the security implications or the security concerns that, that come up around using Kubernetes. That's a big hole in my knowledge. And so, so for that reason, you know, I'm really, it scares me to say this should be the solution that all Rails devs use without some more auditing, without some more eyes from people who know what they're doing in this space. I mean, the whole CI/CD is very close to my heart. I mean, I recently made a pretty big change where I joined Dagger. Mm. It's all about CI/CD there. And that is on my mind, like, you know, all day, every day. Mm. And this feels like a huge loop completing in that I remember the pain that Capistrano was. I remember the chef that, you know, used to lay the groundwork (laughs) and all the Nokogiri stuff that we used to do. And out of that frustration, out of the frustration with Capistrano, I tried something called Mina. I don't think many people have heard of that. And I even wrote like my own deployment tool in Bash called Deliver, which mm. then for got created called eDeliver for Erlang applications, which is how my journey with ChangeLog started. Jared asked me, hey, I've seen your name. I recognize it. Can you help us deploy ChangeLog? And that's how all the journey started. Okay, cool. And now I'm like back in the space focusing on the CI/CD aspect. And I also think that there should be a good canonical way of deploying Phoenix apps. Hmm. And it doesn't matter whether you want to deploy them to Kubernetes or Fly Mm -hmm. or elsewhere. It really doesn't matter. And what would it take for us to deploy changelog using something canonical that others contribute to? Because as much as I love this stuff, other people are very smart in specific areas. And only when we come together can we make a better way or a Mm -hmm. good way of doing things. We can keep improving it. It should definitely be bigger than a single person. So why not do the same for Rails apps? And it's the idea, that omakase idea that David you know, put out, there should be an yes. easy way, a default way. <laughs> just go, you just pick it, and it just works, right? It doesn't, it doesn't matter how. So I'm very excited about that idea. Thank you. Yeah, no, I, me too. I mean, that's most of my professional career has been working with Rails and Rails apps mm-hmm. and Ruby. So the concept of omakase and convention over configuration is, is very near and dear to me. And I mm. and I think that's something that Stefan said in his his podcast that I mentioned earlier on the Ruby Rogues, because they they were questioning him all the, like, oh but but you know we can we can use Heroku or and we can like everything is so different. Like all these different cloud providers are so different. Like how could we possibly, you know, provide or or or, or um, 
how could we possibly give you guidance on how to deploy your app when there's applications all have so many different desires and needs mm-hmm. and you know, dependencies and then and then all these cloud providers have so many different bells and whistles and ways of hooking things up how could we possibly provide guidance on that and his answer was i don't care i just want it to work <laughs> you know exactly. which i thought was so correct you know it's a, it's a really it's it's very difficult to work to write something to work on something mm-hmm. that just works like active record just works or like active job just works mm-hmm. But Rails has done that, I think, historically for a long time, and it takes a lot of that burden off the developer to do those things. I realized the other day, I was writing a RailsConf talk proposal for Kubi, and I realized after thinking about some conversations with a number of my colleagues and friends you know, over the years that most Rails developers, I would say most developers in general that aren't in the DevOps space or in the production engineering space, or SecOps or whatever, most of those people want to think about deployment like 0% of the time. They really don't care how their application gets launched into production. They just want it to be there. I think that's very similar to how people think about database access. Nobody wants, aside from DBAs, most developers don't want to think about how to connect to a database and how to manage all of the the access, manage whatever else there is to manage databases. They don't want to think about that. They just want to connect to it and shove data into it and get data back out. So Wrapping all of that stuff up into a gem or a system or a framework or something is kind of Rails's key to success, I think, or part of its key to success. And that's what I want Kubi to be also as a way to sort of compress all of that, those best practices, that knowledge, that overhead into a single config file. And you just say, this is what I want you to do. Now go do it. Yeah, for sure. There is something to be said about the simplicity of encoding the things that we all do as Rails developers, as Elixir developers, as you know, Java developers. And I mm. think uh, some communities like Maven, they have these practices really, like they've been refining them for many, many years. Yes. What about Rust developers? What about Go developers? There's like all the all these tools that, that keep coming out. And these days you don't have just Rails. I mean, you're very lucky if you have just one programming language, mm-hmm. just one framework. There's typically multiple ones. So can we just once and for all agree on something? And can we all contribute <laughs> to one thing? You know, it doesn't matter like, like Kubernetes, right? It just like encapsulates so many great things and right. some people don't like it and that's okay. You know, just go and use, use like a pass if you don't want to deal with the whole pain of, of Kubernetes. Yes. And this makes me wonder, someone like GitHub, for example, how do they solve this problem in a way that they share it with others? Is it just like internally or is it something that could benefit others as well? Yes, that's a really good question. So I've only been at GitHub for a few months and I, I took a big leave of absence in the middle there to, to have my second daughter. I just started a couple, like last week, actually, this is my second week back. Mm-hmm. So my knowledge of how GitHub deploys things is, is, is limited, but I can say that, I can say that, so GitHub is kind of famous for this chat ops concept mm-hmm. and that's how deployment of github.com is done. You, you hop into a special Slack channel and there are certain chat ops you can perform so, for example, I can I can ask it to deploy a, a pull request. Mm-hmm. By that pull request has to have all the correct stamps of approval. But then I copy and paste the URL, and I just say, you know, deploy dot deploy, and then paste in you know the PR link. And the chat app will respond to me saying, "Great, I, I've enqueued this for deployment. It's going out in a deploy train, which is a bunch of other PRs all merged into one. And then it I can go to this internal application we have called Heaven, which shows the steps that it's performing. Mm-hmm. It's using Kubernetes under the hood." I know that for a fact, but I don't see any of that plumbing myself. Mm. All the different resources, you know, YAML resources or, or whatever that it's using, I don't see any of that stuff. I don't see it get built into an image. Mm. All I see is the heaven output that says, you know, waiting on this gate. Okay, we're done waiting. Everything looks good. We're going to proceed to the next step. And at the end of the day, uh, it's also, of course, checking a, a deployment. It links you to a deployment dashboard that says, you know, this is our current P99. This is our current number of errors. Mm-hmm. And you as a, a human being can look at that, but also it's automatically looking at that and checking for dips and or, or increases in 5xx responses. So the, all of that stuff is controlled via chat ops and, and via this internal dashboard. I don't know if any of that's been open sourced. I think some of the chat ops have been like Hubot specifically mm-hmm. has been yeah, open sourced. Yeah, I remember sourced. that. But all the code, like all those those very GitHub specific chat ops I don't think those have been open sourced. It would be really cool if we could do that. I don't have any idea mm. or any insight into the team that works on that stuff and whether or not they've considered that, but I think that would be really nice for the community. I'm not so convinced about that, and let me tell you why. The Hubot, I remember Hubot mm. for like a long, long time. Again, when I was doing Rails, this was still a thing. And when I tried setting it up, 
it was so complicated, I mm. just gave up. So there is something to be said about tooling that works for a company like GitHub with its mm -hmm. complexity, mm -hmm. with like the number of developers, with the type of the code base. It's almost like trying to do what Google does. So if we tried, if they open source Borg, that would have never worked. So instead, <laughs> they open source Kubernetes. That made yes. a lot more sense. And then many companies came together to make that happen. I watched the Kubernetes documentary a couple of weeks back. It was fascinating to hear some of those stories and to realize... Hold on, there's a Kubernetes documentary? Oh, yes, part one and Whoa. part two. Yeah, they're really good. Okay, I'll, I'll share, share the links. Yeah, they're please, great. Please do. And... Uh, it was great to see the journey and like to understand the complexity that goes behind it, especially when it comes to making something simple, making something easy to use. And Kubernetes is really complicated, but mm -hmm. people have no idea how complicated Borg is and what it takes to run these systems. And okay, you can run, you can use a platform. That is a valid, you know, totally. option. Go for it. No worries. But you may have like you based on where you are in your operational maturity, you may say, you know what, I actually need Kubernetes because I have all these other things I need to run somewhere. Like, for example, managing DNS. What manages DNS? What manages certificates? Mm -hmm. Totally. What manages all those things? You can say the platform does all of that. Okay, so how many apps do you have? And what about your CDN integration? Does the platform mm -hmm. manage that as well? Okay, what about your functions? Do you have some edge functions? Does the platform does, do, do that as well? And many say, yes, 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 yes. Right. And say, okay, so how much fragmentation do you have within that platform? Can you hold it in your head? And again, it depends where you are, but the majority who bought so difficult to set up and maybe they would yeah. never go through the pain. And the way that you describe that you, de you do deployments, the majority, I don't think they do it like that. I think they just push and they just want stuff to yes. happen, <laughs> right? <Exactly. laughs> which, is, which, is, which is what we do. It's really hard. I learned sort of in this process and, and by talking to people again, that like there, it's really hard to beat Git push Heroku master. I mean, that's just... Isn't that just kind of where we're all striving to get to, even though they've done this for like 15, 20 years now, yeah. we're all still trying to do, to replicate that turnkey ease of deployment, I think. But that's exactly what we have with our Kubernetes. So Changelog runs on Kubernetes today and it will run on multiple platforms. So we're looking at Fly next. Mm -hmm. We've been talking about this actually for a couple of episodes, but they haven't aired yet. So okay. <laughs> you will hear this <laughs> retrospectively. The point being that we want to try like what it looks like to run on a platform and to compare it side by side, Kubernetes sure. and manage Kubernetes and the platform. And from the flow perspective, nothing changes. Developers just get push and then things happen in the background. I say developers, it's actually Jared, Adam, and yeah. anyone else that commits code, <laughs> me. It's like us three. But nothing changed in years, in six years, even though we went through a couple of infrastructure reorgs, that yes. model not, never changed because it's so hard to beat. It's so good, yeah. Yeah, and if you have branches, well, wouldn't it be amazing if you could automatically have the preview mm -hmm. environment, maybe? Or even better, can you switch the way you think about features and can you do, use feature flags? I know that GitHub uses this a lot. So then yes. just push into main. Okay, you have, a, you have a branch. Okay, get some approvals, whatever, extra eyes. But get it into main as quickly as possible so that you can try it out, put it behind yes. the feature flags. Oh, sorry, behind the feature flag. And when it's done, either remove it or if it's not good enough, just delete it. It's okay. Yeah, Don't absolutely. get attached to your ideas, but try yes. them out in production. <laughs> <Absolutely>. <laughs> Otherwise, it's just inventory. So true, yeah. I've been thinking actually for this storybook that I talked about before, I've been thinking about a Kubi plugin potentially or some other mechanism we can use to deploy you know, individual copies of that website for, for per, per branch or per pull request. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure how to do that. I, I've been noodling around like in the shower and stuff about that. I'm not sure how we're going to do that. But, okay. but yeah, something, something like that would be really nice to have too, I think. It sort of speaks to what you were saying. Yeah. I remember when I talked about my 12 months of Docker in production mm -hmm. at Elrock. This was 2014, almost eight years ago. My plan was to set up a environment per branch. I never got to it, mm. but I have not given up the dream. So my dream yes. is to see that, <laughs> you know, totally. and, and now I'm back in the game, like properly focusing on CI/CD, and I would so very much like to do that. So I think we have some follow-ups to do to this. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's so funny you say that. That's definitely what our like goal was at Lumos or at Lumosity, Lumos Labs also. Mm -hmm. We tried for a long time to, to get our infrastructure to a point where we could like deploy a staging version per branch, basically. We call it ephemeral environments. Mm -hmm. Preview is a, a better word for it. We want to be able to like deploy that you know, per branch and then share that link with QA people or with 
somebody who was trying to test the iOS app or something so that they would have a, a standard or a static URL they mm-hmm. could use uh, to test something. We had staging environments. We had like staging 50 through 67 or something because the previous Capstone versions had been staging one through 49 or whatever. Mm-hmm. So we had all of that, but then somebody could, you know, those got stale quickly and you could boot somebody out, override them and deploy over the top and then they would lose their staging URL. So, you know, mm-hmm. like it wasn't great and we were on Kubernetes. And so we were like, why don't we just try to do ephemeral environments? And it just never happened. It was just so yeah. difficult to do. What's up, shippers? This episode is brought to you by our friends at Raygun. Raygun gives you instant visibility into the health of your software, get actionable real-time insights into the quality and the performance of your web and mobile apps. Raygun delivers modern tooling for customer-centric teams, error monitoring and crash reporting, ship better quality software faster, get code-level insights into the health of your application in real-time, and start fixing the errors impacting your end-user's experience. You get real user monitoring, quickly identify and resolve front-end performance issues impacting real users in real time, understand exactly how your application performed for every user session and page load. And of course, application performance monitoring gain unrivaled visibility into server-side performance, unlock detailed code-level insights into the root cause of performance issues so you can take action and deliver lightning-fast digital experiences. The next step is to head to raygun.com and start your free 14-day trial, no credit card required. Join thousands of customer-centric software teams who use Raygun every single day. Again, raygun.com and by our friends at Rewatch. Rewatch gives product and engineering teams async superpowers, and it helps them move faster with greater clarity. And I love clarity. Imagine this, all of your team's videos all in one place. Record, organize, and share the videos that your team needs to ship great work. Keep everyone in the loop by sharing team meetings from sprint planning to daily standups to project retros. Empower new hires to get up to speed faster with onboarding and training videos that are easy to watch and, of course, rewatch. You can streamline knowledge sharing by creating a library of product demos, tech talks, architecture reviews, and so much more. And we're using Rewatch here at Changelog, and the killer feature for us is every video is automatically transcribed and searchable. And the transcripts are surprisingly very accurate, which makes it so easy for us to search key phrases, terms, and find and play the exact spot in a video. Plus, there's commenting and threaded conversation options on every single video. Now, we have a home for all our videos to enable our growing and distributed team to participate in any conversation asynchronously and on their own time. Check them out. Get started for free with a 14-day trial at rewatch.com. Again, rewatch.com. I mean, that was the goal. Kubernetes was, as an idea, people were not meant to know what they even run, right. because it doesn't really matter. That was the whole, it was meant to abstract away the concerns of your infrastructure. Right. It accomplished it partly, but we ended up like yammering like crazy and, you know, yeah. worrying about all those concerns like services, what is a service and what is an ingress as developers. And yes. while that was okay for a while, I think it, it, it got boring and old after a couple of years, you know, and we just want to just go a bit higher up, you know, like, yes. like just like not worry about those things. Right. That's a really good, astute observation, I think. that, And I saw a tweet to this effect the other day, which is like, as an engineer, what you're really mm-hmm. doing is just you're reinventing the wheel at like different levels of abstraction just constantly, right? Like every time we come up with a new Kubernetes is a new thing or has been recently a new thing that that sort of, you know, papered over your cloud provider. Mm-hmm. You know, before that, people were deploying stuff to cloud providers manually, really. I mean, with Capistrano potentially, or, yeah. you know, even with Docker, push an image up and just run it. Don't just do Docker run on your, on your, on your, you know, cloud machine or something like that. Yeah. So yeah, we've, we've now reached this point where like even Kubernetes isn't a high enough abstraction. We need something else even on top of that, which is just, it's just kind of funny to me, but, but I, but I understand why that is. I think, mm. you know, there's so much to learn and so much to know about application development 
that no no one person can know it all. And so having these conceptual compression concepts like active record and active deployment, if that exists at some point, you know, or Kubi is to, to try and make that easier so that you can focus on the things that you really are good at. How do we come together? For sure, that is that is something which yes. is on my mind a lot and, and has been in, in recent months. But I'm seeing a lot of parallels between Phoenix and Rails mm-hmm. in terms of you need a database, you need to run migrations, you have assets, you do that compilation, you have your tests to run. Sometimes sure. people just build and deploy, but when do you test? Do you test part of your build? Because you do get push and then things just happen. When do the tests run? Yeah, that's a really good question. Sometimes they don't, right? But it should be part of it is build, test, and deploy. It's literally like the three stages of the pipeline. So yeah, yeah. what happened to the tests? <laughs> yeah, boy, that's a really good question. I mean, sort of considering testing part of deployment is really, I think, pretty interesting and pretty key, really. I mean, CI, CD, that's really what you're talking about. Like you said, yeah. build, test, deploy. If somehow the testing got forgotten, build and deploy, or the, what I, what Kubi, for example, doesn't work, focus on mm-hmm. testing at all. It's just deployment. I don't know. That's a good question. But but you're making me think now, maybe that should be part of... I mean, there's also a lot to consider when it comes to sort of where's the edge of, of the deployment system? Like, where does Kubi start and end? Where does the... Mm-hmm. Where does Kubernetes start and end? Like, what is it responsible for? And then what's your app responsible for? I mean, Kubi is really just meant to build and deploy. I think because that would be what you would do. Like, I would probably break that up into two different GitHub actions. There'd be a build action, Mm -hmm. and then there'd be a deploy action that would run in sequence because the building has to happen before the deployment. And then I would think that, you know, if the team would then set up the, the testing CI steps separately. However, you're making me think maybe what we should be doing instead is making sure that the build and deploy steps only happen if the tests pass. Mm-hmm. And you can configure that manually, of course, in your CI system. So GitHub Actions, for example, we could you could you know link these together and say as long if the first one doesn't pass, the second ones don't, second and third don't run. But it might be kind of kind of cool to sort of build that into the system and so that you know if instead of having to wire that stuff up yourself, you could simply have Kubi run all those things for you. I'd have to think a lot more about that. Uh, but you, you raise a really good point. So on that path, because I have been on that path for a while, and we have been encoding this in CircleCI for years. So mm. we use CircleCI, and we still do, by the way, because we have two of everything, or we try to have two of everything. So for we have sure. two CI systems. So we use both CircleCI and GitHub Actions, which feels a bit excessive. But if anyone fails for whatever reason, our deploys will not be blocked. And I think we're going into that like this multi-world where... You have Kubernetes, sure, but maybe you want a platform as well. And maybe Mm -hmm. as you run your experiments, you have two things running side by side all the time. And you pick the one, basically the the fastest one wins. Yeah. If my deploy got onto that system first, well, that will be promoted to the new production. And the old one is maybe a laggard, but it will come, you know, within a few minutes. Not a problem. I wonder if you could even compare those two build artifacts or even the resources and see like, are these binary compatible? If so, then... I've got a repeatable build too. There are so many things there for sure. So on this path, you start seeing, I'm thinking of it as a DAG. So the Mm. direct acyclical graph. So there are all these steps and some of them you want them to be automatically cached because you want efficiency and testing can be one of those steps. Mm. But there's other concerns, like for example, assets. Do you need to compile the assets? And I say assets, I mean the static assets, like your JavaScript, your CSS, all those things. And then, okay, you compile them, you bundle them. Do you deploy them to the same place that you're at? Mm. Or do you push them to S3 or something like that? And that may happen as well. So which of these steps still need to happen? Because once you start thinking about like everything that needs to happen, you start having this huge graph. Mm. And if you run everything every single time, well, why? Do, mm-hmm. do tests need to run? Did something change for your tests to run? And if they did, they should definitely run. And then what other steps in that graph will get invalidated? Sure, sure. Yeah, that's really interesting. Right, because if you change if you change some kind of application file, mm-hmm. you know, some, for example, Ruby file, Python file that, that actually, you know, affects how your application runs, then the tests should probably run, make sure that's okay. Of course. But if all you did was, you know, make a change to your documentation, tests probably don't have to run for that exactly yeah and how how do you configure that like how do you capture that and you do the same thing so whatever you do for rails phoenix will have similar concerns yeah absolutely you see so then that's when you start duplicating effort and i don't know enough about django because i never used it but maybe you do the same thing in django i only used django back in 2010 and i 
<laughs> don't remember how. Yeah. I think all of it, the asset story for most of these frameworks back in those days was very, I would say, immature compared to what we have now. Yeah, primordial. Yeah, things. Yeah, things move along. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, I don't even think there were really CDNs back then. It was just like, here's a file that I'm serving to your browser. It's not fingerprinted or versioned at all. It's just here's your here's your file. Yeah. And then one thing which I'm a huge fan of is splitting CI and CD. Basically, I like to point people out. Do you see that like forward slash? That means something. Mm. And the intention behind that is that you should have two separate systems because if your CI pushes into production, maybe it has too many privileges. Maybe your CI has the key to your kingdom. So that comes the, there oh, comes really? the security aspect. So what about CI running the tests, obviously building, testing, and producing an artifact that's ready to be delivered. But there's something else which is watching those artifacts. And now you already start thinking, you know, Kubernetes controllers that continuously yep. converge, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Right. And then they see, am I running the latest version? And if I'm not, maybe I should be. And then what does that mean from a GitOps perspective for me to be running the latest version? Maybe there's another commit which will be triggered. I don't know. Right. So in that way, it's a very easy way to add N deployment targets because it's the deployment target that knows what it needs to do, not the CI. The CI doesn't care where that artifact needs to end because it stops with, okay, I produced an artifact which will work. We ran the tests, right. we ran like all these things. It's all good. It can go into production or staging. I don't I don't like staging, by the way. I go straight into prod. Yeah. I see it like as an intermediary step. Yeah, and it's often wrong. The goal would be to have the confidence to do that. Yeah, like go straight into prod, build a resilient system that if there is a problem, it will know how to handle it. It won't crash and burn. So what does that look like? And what does that mean for Kubi? Does Kubi maybe run CD and it leaves CI to something else? Because I, that, that's what it sounds to me. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. I know that there have been people in the past, Kingdon Barrett, actually, someone who has been commenting on a lot of Kubi issues mm-hmm. or has filed Kubi issues and stuff in the past. I think he, he works for a company that I think is, is invested in the GitOps space. I think it's Flow. I think that to me sounds like Flux. Sorry, Flux. You're yes, right, not Flow. Yes. yes, and that's Weaveworks. Yes, Kingdom Barrett. Yes, Weaveworks. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's been doing a lot with Kubi and and uh, GitOps. Mm-hmm. And one of the big questions was, well, so you know, with GitOps, my understanding is, and I have I really have not dabbled with it much, but in our conversations the way I understand GitOps is that, you know, you've got these, these YAML files, this configuration that mm-hmm. you'll eventually apply to your cluster. And uh, that configuration is, can be, can really come from anywhere. But the point is that it gets committed to your source control system. That's correct. Yes. And then once you push that up to, to Git or wherever else, then, you know, webhook fires and that's what gets deployed is all the, mm-hmm. those static YAML files. And so you can version everything that way. That's really interesting. Something that I had never considered doing really, it was more just like you would run mm-hmm. Kubi deploy from potentially your laptop, just like you could with Capistrano. Not that I think that's a particularly good idea, mm-hmm. but you can do that. You can also run it from GitHub Actions or some other CI or CD system. But it really begs the question, you know, what other use cases can we enable? And one of the things that he and I have been talking about is, would it be cool if you could write those resources? Like, Because Kubi has a, a Kubi resources command, which will just print all of the Kubernetes YAML files to standard out. You can redirect those to a file and commit that source control. We'd also been talking about, wouldn't it be cool if you had like a flag that would tell it where to put those files or maybe split them up into different uh, directories and whatnot and then commit that. Mm. So that's been an ongoing conversation, but it made me really think about what other ways are people going to want to use this tool? Not, I would think that the GitOps concept is popular now and, and maybe something that the Kubi could you know, help with in a, in a more direct way, mm-hmm. maybe a plugin or something that would, that would, you know, communicate with Git or something like that. But there's other, other options too. Like you mentioned the tests concept. I think for me right now, just for my own sanity, <laughs> it makes sense for Kubi to, to just sort of handle the deployment side of things without considering yeah. tests and, and let sort of leave that up to the, the viewer or the, the user, the, the creator, mm-hmm. the application manager, whatever, to uh, the developer to hook up and wire up. But I, I don't think that's necessarily where we have to stay. I think we could potentially look at other yeah. techniques for deploying like GitOps and things like that, for sure. Well, if anything from this conversation, what, what, what I'm taking away is that I definitely want to look closer at Kubi. You mentioned that there's an example Rails app, which I can use, mm-hmm. so I don't have to have my own. That is amazing. So what are the concepts that we can learn from Kubi? And what are the common concepts that we can apply elsewhere? And again, my mind is Dagger because that's where I spend yes. most of my time. And I'm taking the whole changelog application 
which is has migrated to Dagger, part also of episode 33, when I mentioned the Terrajet provider. So like all those three things we are using. Parka is, is the other tool mm. um, for CPU profiling. So all those things we are already using in production. And what I'm thinking is, what is the next step? What can we learn from Kubi? Where do we meet? Because I'm sure that we meet at some point. So where do we meet today? And where do we want to meet six months from now? What would make yeah. sense? Because... I'm so keen on solving this problem once and for all. I mean, it's maybe one of the reasons why I'm back, you know, like in this like CICD space, like full time, because it feels like I have unfinished business there. So as we prepare to wrap up, what is your takeaway for the users, for the listeners? I think there there are several things that I want, especially Rails devs to take away, but but I, I assume, or I, I, I could say everybody also, one of those things is that to treat Kubernetes as a platform and not as a, a target or even using just, you know, using technology for its own sake. You know, if you're using Kubernetes because you think Kubernetes is cool and it's flashy and new, then that's, you know, that's fine. But I think the takeaway message that I would like to communicate, something that I learned kind of the hard way is that most people don't care about Kubernetes just because it's a new technology. They, they want to deploy their app and have it, have it run in production in Kubernetes or, or, or wherever. They don't really care where uh, it ends up running. So that would be my, my first takeaway would be just be like, make sure that, you know, you think about it as a platform and not as sort of a be all end all. And then the other thing I would say, something that I've talked with a, a previous coworker about at length is to use an actual programming language to create your Kubernetes resources. Mm. Helm is one thing that I think the community has coalesced around when it comes to deployment. I personally think Helm is really bad at templating and Pulumi and Kubi and other solutions that use actual programming languages to compile these resources or build up these resources, I think is is a much saner way to go. Mm-hmm. I mean, anytime you have a templating engine where like you have to indent everything manually, it's just <laughs> it's so error prone. So that would be another takeaway is to use an actual programming language for these things, whether it's um, you know, Ruby or JavaScript or Python, there's solutions now, I think, for all those languages. I and mean, I don't think we touched on that too much during the show, but one thing I also had wanted to say that I mentioned to Gerhard is that, um, you know, what sort of using a programming language sort of ties into the question of like, like what can Ruby specifically, what are the, some of the benefits of the language that make it especially suited to something like this? And I, I did want to touch on that really briefly and just say that, because I know that that Ruby has sort of taken a backseat over the last couple of years you know, maybe hit its peak popularity in, in 2009, 2010, maybe. And, and now we're sort of, you know, we're into the rusts and the Haskells and the the TypeScripts of the world. And, and that's, and, and maybe Go and Rust and all that stuff too. And that's, that's fine. Nothing wrong with those languages. But to all those listeners out there, if you haven't looked at Ruby for a while, I would definitely take another look. I think, especially with Ruby 3.1, which is the most recent release, there are some really very cool new language features that you could look at. Specifically when it comes to Kubi and deployment, one of the most, I think, powerful things about Ruby is the concept of blocks. So being able to pass a block to something that's like an anonymous function usually happens like at the end of a function call. That's how Kube DSL works and that makes extensive use of blocks. Anyway, I'm sort of I'm sort of rambling now, but the, po- the point is that a real programming language can really be your friend in this kind of space and that, that Ruby has a lot of really nice language features that make this kind of thing really, really easy. I think there's a lot to be said about YAML and Helm mm-hmm. and that complexity and templating with YAML, oh my goodness me, and using Go to template YAML. So yeah, there's definitely something there. I have uh, something amazing to share with you. It's called the Q language, QLang. Yeah. That's what Dagger uses, right? Yep. But the language on its own, yeah, it's it's like one of the Dagger components. Yeah. But it's this whole idea that you want automatically formatting, you want type checking, you want type safety, mm-hmm, you want mm-hmm. all those things in your configuration. And it doesn't have to be a programming language. So, you know, yeah. it is a solution to the YAML problem. And I'm confident that we are closer to solving it than ever. And whether it's a programming language, that's okay. I think at this point, many things are better than than, than YAML. It's like the whole ubiquity of it. It's just everywhere, mm-hmm. right? And it's so easy to write. Much much easier than, than JSON, I think. I'm not even going to mention XML because it's not even in like in the same <laughs> ballpark. Right. Yeah, I think there's there's something to be said about it. Like it's still the test of time, YAML, and it, it's been around for a long time for a reason. JSON it and all the other, you know, yes. things which like DAL as well. There are there are a couple that, you know, try to solve the YAML problem, but yeah, or the problem with YAML, but you know, it's, it's still here, fortunately or unfortunately. Yes, yes, totally. I, so let me amend what I said. You don't necessarily need a programming language, maybe like 
a general purpose one, but something that isn't just templating YAML because that really leads to lots of pain. We definitely agree there. Cameron, it's been a pleasure. I'm so happy that I could convert a listener to a guest. (laughs) So, so happy. Kubi looks amazing. I'm really looking forward to what happens with it next, where the community takes it. And having Kubi as the new Rails active deployment, even if it like stops at the idea stage, I think it's an amazing idea. It's a crazy idea and I'm all about crazy (laughs) ideas. So I'm wondering what happens next with that. Thank you, Cameron. Thank you. I really appreciate that. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Likewise. Thank you for tuning into another episode of Ship It. This is just one of our podcasts for developers. Go to changelog.com slash master for the rest. You can join us for free via changelog.com slash community. Our listeners from all around the world appreciate the low latency changelog.com that you're serving fastly. Cheers. Breakmaster Cylinder, thank you for the great beats. That's it for this week. See you all next week. One last thing. A few days ago, I recorded episode 44, which is due to ship next week. I had many conversations since we started Ship It, but few were as profoundly eye-opening as this one. Everyone knows that Kelsey Hightower is world-class, and now I've experienced firsthand why that is. I really look forward to sharing that conversation with you.